This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Chris Ivany, Chief Development Officer for the Family Care Center, about his military career as a behavioral health professional and the vision of the Family Care Center to bring mental health and wellness support to communities that need them. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Homes for All Veterans. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. Before we get into the interview portion of the show, I wanted to take a few minutes to express my thanks and appreciation in a number of different ways. If you've been listening to the past couple of shows, you've heard me introduce a new friend and colleague, Daniel Schreider, as the new host of Inside the Military Mind. I'm excited about the continuing opportunity for him to bring his unique perspective to the conversation around mental health and wellness and to continue to share his insights into the psychology of the military-affiliated population and the stories of those who support them. You can hear more about Daniel in his story by checking out episode 24. I highly recommend you take a listen to it after this. My family and I arrived in Colorado Springs in 2006 when we were stationed at Fort Carson after tours in Germany, Fort Bragg, and Fort Meade. We were fortunate to be able to make El Paso County our family's home until I retired in 2014, and like many who found their way here as a result of the military, we decided that this is where we would permanently settle. As I began my post-military career in social services and behavioral health, I continued to do what I always loved doing in the Army, taking care of troops. Whether that was part of the homelessness services community, being an advocate for mental health and wellness, or working with others to implement a suicide prevention collaborative, my primary focus was how can I continue to serve those who raised their right hand and swore to defend our nation. I've been with the Family Care Center longer than I've been with any single other organization in my life. When I tell people that, they say, but you were in the Army for over 20 years. Well, that's true, but anyone who served in the military knows that it's a gig economy. You're not really in a single job or duty position longer than two or three years. The longest I was with any single organization in the military was three and a half years, and I've been affiliated with the Family Care Center and its predecessor organizations for nearly eight years. But I also like to view it as having served the community of El Paso County in Southern Colorado. We've come a long way in addressing the mental health and wellness of service members, veterans, and their families in our region, and I'm proud to have been able to bring some of that to the forefront. If anyone's listening and wondering what's going on with me, I'm moving in another direction, taking a leadership position with an organization that provides advice and support to communities around the country who are implementing suicide prevention and behavioral health integration programs for the military-affiliated population. In doing so, I hope to highlight the great work that's being done in our community and how it can be used as a model for other military-affiliated communities across the nation. So I appreciate your indulgence for this brief interlude. If you want to keep up with me, it's not going to be hard to find out what I'm doing through a quick internet search as long as you spell my name correctly. I'll continue to be an advocate for mental health, wellness, and suicide prevention for service members, veterans, and their families. You can always find out the work that I'm doing by checking out my website, VeteranMentalHealth.com, where you'll find a ton of blogs, quite a few podcasts, and even several books that I've published to help folks understand more about the military mindset. And I request that you continue listening, sharing, and supporting Inside the Military Mind as Daniel takes it into the future. As always, it would be great to hear your feedback or thoughts about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Share them with us by dropping an email to MilitaryMind at FCCSprings.com. As I mentioned, today's interview segment is with Dr. Chris Ivany, the Chief Development Officer for the Family Care Center. Dr. Ivany attended medical school at the University of Texas and completed his internship and residency in psychiatry at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He served as the 4th Infantry Division psychiatrist and deployed to Baghdad in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2007 to 2009 and served as the Chief of Behavioral Health at Fort Carson. His final assignment before retiring from the United States Army 
was developing and leading the Defense Health Agency's first healthcare innovation group. Let's get into my conversation with Dr. Ivany and come back afterwards to talk about the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So you're no stranger to the Pikes Peak region, having been stationed here before. Now you've chosen to retire here and continue your commitment to the military and veteran mental health. I'm interested to hear about your journey, both in and out of the military, and how it relates to mental health for the military-affiliated population. Uh, hi, Dwayne. Yeah, um, it's it's been quite a journey um, in, in in the uniform. I, I, I joined the Army uh, as an intern at Walter Reed in psychiatry in 2001, in July 2001. September 11th, obviously, was just a couple short months uh, after that. Um, so the entirety of my 20 year career, of which I just retired about three months ago, has been in a post 9 11 um, world, which was vastly different uh, for the military and even more so uh, very different uh, for for the military and its mental health uh, teams and the approach that it took towards mental health. So my career uh, spanned, I think, a very, very unique uh, time within, within the military uh, as a comes or as it relates to mental health, because it was a a time in which I think the military has embraced mental health um, as a necessary, important, valiant uh, effort uh, to a degree that it never had, I think, before. And also a time in which it faced some of the greatest challenges within the area of of mental health. And I've had the uh, privilege of trying to be able or or trying to solve or at least partially to try to address some of those challenges that came up during that time. Uh, So when it came time for me to retire, you know, just very recently, you know, Colorado Springs is a, is a wonderful place to live, both just a, a beautiful place to be, a, a welcoming family uh, type of environment. I've got three kids uh, now, three teenage kids, and we were stationed here before, as you alluded to, and this was always on our very short list of places that we would consider after I retired. So it was a wonderful place to be, a, a wonderful community of, of people uh, that's very much in tune, I think, with, with the military experience and the experience of those who served, whether the, the people in the community served themselves or not. The our our feel when we were here before was that the the welcoming nature the understanding nature of Colorado Springs was something that we just wanted to be part of and uh, now joining the family care center this is an organization I think that takes that mission very seriously and it was one that again we wanted to be part of now it's interesting you say that you were started in the military thinking that you know it was going to be Cold War stuff or, or mm-hmm. post uh, post Gulf War stuff right so we had Somalia we had Bosnia but really largely it was a peacetime army. My, my career uh, straddled that. So I did 10 years pre and then 10 years um, post 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at that point, we really didn't understand what was going to come. And I think it wasn't until 2006, 2007 that we really started to understand what the impact of the conflicts were. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, we, I, I think back to, again, September 2001, when we just, it was just dawning you know, on, on everybody what was happening within the world. And then it took several years, I think, for everyone to realize as we were engaged now in in two wars, you know, a two front war, uh, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, uh, very in very negative ways initially, right? That mental health need surfaced in, the, in a, a rising suicide rate. Fortunately, here in Colorado Springs, we had several incidents, right, that were very violent uh, that had to do with soldiers who had just returned from theater. And so the, the that initial period, you know, was was painful. Uh, it was painful for the victims there was painful, you know, for those in the military and painful for those people whose job it was to try to address those mental health conditions. It would be terrible. I probably would have left the army if the story stopped there, you know, but, but fortunately I think that experience led many within the military, many in Congress, uh, both through the efforts of people in the media, as well as people internal to the military to call attention to this as a legitimate issue that impacted not just the wellness of our soldiers and their families, but also the readiness of the force. Uh, and I think when senior leaders started to realize that this this is a force impairing, readiness impairing issue, it, it got full attention, resourcing beyond what had ever you know been allocated to mental health within the military and true true motivation, again, from the level of Congress all the way down to to fix it, to do whatever was it was within our power to try to, to change it. And that was the, the most exciting part of my career was trying to be, was working within that environment where there is there was almost unilateral, you know, desire to make 
positive change in these issues, which had become, you know, very, you know, very easy to see, I think, within the army in particular, but the military as a whole. I think it would have been really interesting to see at that point, you know, in the military, we said we're always fighting the last war and especially mental health. And I talked to people who were in the VA at the time is their mm-hmm. focus was on Vietnam veterans, right? Yeah. Gulf War veterans and mm-hmm. things like that. But the response lagged behind by four or five years. But also in the late 90s, early 2000s, technologically with behavioral health, we were at a place understanding more neurologically mm-hmm. um, how the brain scans and, and, and how the brain is actually impacting these things yeah. where you were really at a convergence in which the technology was at the right place for the, the work that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the field, you know, the field had advanced from, from Vietnam. I mean, as you know, the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis itself was something that's relatively new within the, the diagnostic and statistical manual. The, the book that us mental health professionals used to make a diagnosis, that wasn't around, you know, World War One, World War II. The, those there are other names, you know, given to that ex, that experience that people had uh, after trauma, you know, for example. And so, you know, that's just one of, of numerous numerous things that changed in in the period leading up to the early two thousands when these issues came to the forefront. Fortunately, when these issues did come to the forefront, we had that growth in in, in, in technology. We had we had new new medications being developed. You know, we had a better understanding of new you know technology like transcranial magnetic stimulation. And others, uh, you know, 20 years prior, 10 years prior, they just didn't exist. And again, I think something that emerged uh, even in those early years, we didn't realize how long this was going to go on or how frequently or or even more the impact on family members. Right. I think we've talked and I've shared before. My kids were in kindergarten when I started to deploy and they were approaching high school when I stopped. Right. Those are different stages um, of of development for the family members or military spouses. And so it became not just the service member, which was the the force protection issue, but really the health and wellness of the entire family. Yeah. And and I think that was spurred, you know, also by the realization that if uh, a soldier's family is not well, then that soldier is not very effective downrange. All right. That became a, a I think a clear realization, you know, by uh, others. Uh, in addition to I think a, a genuine motivation to help the family members and strengthen the community, it also became a readiness issue. And that was a, another factor which led to increased resources you know, being applied, you know, both within the military health system, within community uh, support you know, services, non-clinical services, as well as other partners within the community uh, that are not directly affiliated with the military, but in, in areas like Colorado Springs, that, that brought resources, programs, outreach, those sorts of things, not just to the to service members, but to their family members, because from the perspective of a, of a functional unit, they're almost inextricable. Yeah. And I think for you and looking at the span of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen a number of successes and failures and, and even mentioned a couple when it came to military medicine, how it might relate to providing mental health services, even in post-military life. Mm-hmm. What insights regarding successes or failures related to military behavioral health medicine could you share? I, th- I think some of our, our biggest lessons learned, you know, Dwayne, was that mental health care needed to be provided within a, a team environment. That when somebody uh, with a significant mental health condition, you know, reaches out for help. In many cases, that care is best delivered, you know, by by a group of people, by a team of people. In, in physical medicine and other areas, we almost take that for granted. You know, where you check in the front desk, you may see a nurse or an assistant and then a doc and then let's say a physical therapist or someone. You know, there, there are components that many people add, you know, to, to someone's treatment. But in, in mental health care, uh, in you know, early 2000s and, and before, we were organized within the military health system as a group of psychiatrists, as a group of psychologists, as a group of clinical social workers, as a group of nurses, all of different parts of the hospital in many cases. So a patient would come in and then to access that team, you know, to help uh, to help them or their family, uh, it, it would, we would it would have to refer them all over the place in a, in a confusing, you know, hard to navigate uh, system. And we, you know, I, they lost many patients that would have otherwise participated or received even better care than, um, than if, you know, we had been working together. So I think that was the first thing is that we had to break down internal barriers within the field itself to provide the most effective care. The second big insight was that most mental health care um, is best delivered, not within an ivory tower type of hospital. For most people, mental health care is best delivered out as part of the community because their experience with mental health care first is it's hard oftentimes to access, right? And, and some of those barriers to access are internal, you know, to folks that they trust the field overall. It's, 
seems weird. Maybe it's their family member had a bad experience growing up or, or, or whatever it is that it's hard to overcome that right for many people. One of the things that we found, though, is that when the mental health professionals become part of the community, when they engage with in the, in the military, within the, within the unit leaders, the company commanders or first sergeants, you know, and non-commissioned officers and, and, and other leaders such as yourself, when they when those mental health providers build a working relationship within the community itself, and the same is true in the, in, in the families within schools, right? And when mental health providers become trusted partners with teachers and principals and counselors in schools, then it helps to alleviate at least one of the barriers that people oftentimes experience because they, they, they get to know a specific person within mental health, not mental health as a field. Mm-hmm. So I've seen many, many people who I've, I've treated who still actually think psychiatrists in general are a little weird, but they'll still come see me. You know, they're mm-hmm. still going to even maybe they think I'm so little weird too, but they feel at least if you develop a relationship with one person mm-hmm. and that team, that's enough. That's enough that I don't need to change how they feel about mental health as a whole, or I don't need to change or argue with them about their family's experience with mental health 25 years ago. We just need a relationship to overcome the stigma to get them in into treatment. So that's been one of the hallmarks, I think, both within the military healthcare system, as well as within the model that the Family Care Center uses and, and, and other places, which is to not, not to build, you know, 15 floor buildings and try to get everybody in the community to come to a central place. It is to put small, multidisciplinary behavioral health teams out within the community and form relationships with the groups that are that are out there, whether that's schools or uh, other healthcare systems, um, uh, you know, the, the legal system, uh, is, you know, and, and other areas where people who have mental health you know challenges are. The more that we can bridge those gaps, form relationships, the easier it is for people to come in and get the care. No, I, I appreciate it. And really those two things. First, that idea of the fracturing, it puts the the onus on the person who needs to navigate all that on the person who's least likely to be able to do it, which is the patient themselves. But just having the difficulty of accessing that. I was actually talking earlier today, in which I experienced something. This was early 2000. I was in Germany. Mm -hmm. The closest hospital was Lonstil, Germany, which was a 30 minute drive away. The person I got my mental health from was the chaplain, Mm -hmm. right? And and usually and historically, you think pre 9-11, the chaplain was was the quote unquote behavioral health specialist, but it, but then it was, well, how do I refer to this place and that place Mm -hmm. and reducing that fracturing and making it more of a team, um, has been able to reduce some of that hesitancy to seek care. Mm -hmm. I I totally agree. I mean, the the chaplain was the, the, the de facto mental health provider, you know, for years and years, my father, you know, was an army armor officer, uh, throughout his, he was in the military for 34 years. Uh, you know, one of his closest confidants was always his, 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 chaplain and where he would send people, you know, if they came to him with, you know, some challenges that, you know, bordered less on the professional, more on the personal. But I think in part, many of the people are not religious, but they sent them to the chaplain because the chaplain was available. Mm-hmm. The chaplain was there, was there mm-hmm. and he knew the chaplain, right? And, and he trusted the chaplain. So he's happy to have one of his soldiers or other leaders go see the chaplain. But what we're trying to we, we tried within the military, you know, to, to build a system where those commanders, they didn't just know a chaplain. They also, you know, had a good relationship with the mental health provider, with whether a psychologist, whoever else, so that certain things definitely need to go to the chaplain still, but other things should go to a mental health provider. And so we you try to broaden the the ability of our folks to access, you know, mental health care, again, by building those relationships. In other cases, simply by bridging the geography. You know, you mentioned 30 minutes away to launch tool. I mean, how many people want to drive 30 minutes for anything, you know, whether it's mental health care or to, to go get a hamburger, right? I mean, you, the closer, the better, right? The, and the, the closer and easier access, the more likely you are to access. There's a human nature about anything. So the more that you can bridge the geography and make it readily available, put the, the, the care as close as you can to the point of need, right? That's, that was one of our guiding principles within the military. And then now, you know, within FCC, get as close as we can to the point of need, eliminate as many of those barriers as we can. And I think that other piece that you mentioned, that lesson that we learned is how we deliver care. For many years, it was, you have to go to a location and everyone knew the location. I mm-hmm. think in Fort Lewis, they called it the elevator of shame mm-hmm. because it was a single elevator that everybody knew where that elevator went. And if mm-hmm. you were standing there, that means you were going to see the wizard or whatever. Right. right. And so these were, it was more stigma producing. Mm-hmm. I, I used to say that, you know, I, I've got a Jeep that people would think it'd be better for my Jeep to be sitting outside of a strip club or a bar than mm-hmm. sitting outside of, you know, a mental health clinic. And so by, by having those single access locations where everybody comes to and come the 
to the doctor rather than getting the doctor them mm -hmm. um, increase more of that stigma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we try to do also by moving to the point of need is, is try to normalize right this this idea of seeking mental health care that it's it's not that big of a deal. The idea that you struggle or you have you have things that you need to work through, whether uh, you know after your experiences, whether that's combat related or or anything else, uh, it should not be that foreign, you know, to us. And we oftentimes make make analogies, you know, to people in sports and at TMB on teams and athletes. You know, going to see a physical therapist because of a sprained ankle is no big deal. It's an expected part of playing a sport, right? I, you know, I don't know if we'll, we'll ever get to that that point, but certainly mental health care was viewed very differently, right? Than that, it was viewed as weakness. And the more that we can, more that we can uh, eliminate those barriers to make to make the experience more normalized, then I think the, again, easier it is to access, the better the outcomes will be for everybody. And you were part of a team, and you you've mentioned it a couple of different times. This mm -hmm. idea of getting care to the point of need. Mm -hmm. We started to see this even with medical care and combat is mm -hmm. treating service members as far forward as possible, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't need to remove them from the people that they've literally been fighting with, right. even for physical care, so mm -hmm. treat them as far forward as possible. But you brought that concept, uh, the embedded behavioral health concept, mm -hmm. to get the mental health treatment closer to the end user, doing the same thing with communities now, the family care center. Why do you think that works it, beyond just what you were talking about as far as the familiarity aspect? But mm -hmm. I don't have to go to the other side of post or the mm -hmm. other side of town. Yeah. Um, I, I want the dentist that's close to me too. Yeah. Some of the reasons that it works, I mean, we, we, we've mentioned several, you know, there's where you're breaking down the the, the hurdles of, of, of distance. You're, you're forming relationships with, you know, with, with the key people within that community. And you're working together as a team, not up in a, some artificially divided uh, hospital type environment. So I think those things are all, you know, very important. The, uh, I think other reason, you know, why uh, that type of approach works is that the mental health provider in that setting then is able to better understand the context and the experience of each particular, in this case, soldier, but could be a member of a community as well. So in other words, if if a soldier was in a, a combat aviation unit, their experience of, of deployment may be very different than a, you know, 1-8 infantry, you know, over there or, or you know, 442 or whatever the other battalion is. Um, and so the more that the, the provider then gets to know a single group or single part of the community, the better able they're, they, they can relate to that experience. They can make better insights. Uh, they can understand the other people in that community that can help that soldier or that family. You can't really do that if you're up in a hospital somewhere and people from all kinds of units from all over the post come in to see you because, you know, it's, it's like a hundred units or something, right? If you focus on one or two or three, then you really understand what the culture is within the units. You understand who the good leaders are, the bad leaders are. You understand if you're going to the field a lot. If you're not, you know, understand the, if the wives and spouses group is strong or not. All those things matter to, to the mental health of the person you're treating. So that's, I think, a really important thing. The same is true in the community here. You know, if, if, a, if a provider lives and works within the community that they serve, they understand how the schools work, whether, you know, they're strong or not. They understand, the, you know, the socioeconomic situation, you know, around these clinics, understand the medical care system that's around there, the emergency rooms and all those kinds of things all become relevant. And it's hard for someone to know an entire city's worth of community. But when you break it down into something smaller, then the provider can understand it better and then use that information to help their patient uh, in a much more effective way. And I think that's a unique aspect to behavioral health is needing that, and we call it cultural competence, but needing mm -hmm. that environmental understanding. In medical care, you know, a knee is a knee. It doesn't matter whether I blew it out playing basketball or jumping out of a helicopter. Mm -hmm. A blown knee is a blown knee. And so yeah. a medical doctor, which could actually benefit from having those community connections, but you can go to an orthopedist in Denver and get the same care that you would get from here. Mm -hmm. um, but for example, Pueblo and Colorado Springs are very, very different communities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're very different from Denver. We don't say, don't bring Denver down here. And Pueblo says, don't bring Colorado Springs. But what you're talking about is having that cultural connection right. and that cultural understanding to understand that client's environment mm -hmm. gives that much more, uh, that much better behavioral health care. Yeah. There's, there, there's a cultural component, you know, which is sort of all this sort of unwritten set of unwritten rules. I was thinking of as, you know, what is culture? And so like, it's, it's sort of how we do what we do around here, but knowing that you don't, you don't write it down anywhere. There's, there's the other part though, I think, 
it's very practical and very tangible. I think things that if, if you were just work with a subset of the community, you know, you know, you know, the phone numbers to the school counselors there. If you only have four or five, you know, you, you know, the phone numbers, you know, to the primary care, you know, clinics around when you need to access other members of the community, right. To build a, a cohesive treatment, you know, plan that's not just clinical, but also accounts for the other social things that clearly impact people's mental health care, you know, like education, access to health care, you know, homelessness, all, all kinds of things. When you, when you build those relationships, you can bring those things to bear for your patient much easier. In addition to understanding the culture, there's, I think, a very practical aspect that's beneficial of that approach. There's also a very personal aspect to the work that we do as behavioral health providers. I mean, we are literally hearing people's deepest, darkest you know, secrets and things like that. And by being connected to a relatively small community, you can provide some longevity like you and I know, and I still call her my doc. And it's mm-hmm. been, you know, almost 10 years, Dr. Katie Kopp, mm-hmm. uh, but she's still my doc. And it, but I don't remember PA that that I was mm-hmm. with in, in Afghanistan, but there's that ability to provide that longevity because this is such a personal medium. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It, it, it's, it's one thing, as you mentioned, you draw the analogy again to, to, to orthopedics, have someone operate on your, on your ankle, your knee that you've never met, you know, you, you can probably get over that, but the, within mental health care, you're the relationships that you develop, you know, are part of the actual, you know, the, the, the treatment itself, because without those, it's very difficult, you know, to, to communicate, you know, many parts of, of our experiences, which is, as you and I know, is oftentimes very important in helping to get better. I think the other idea of this embedded behavioral health concept, and you saw it really in the military, starting it in the military here at Carson, and then some challenges, either even going to other communities and yeah. trying to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really it's about trust, yeah. um, is establishing trust in a particular, the concept of embed, embedded behavioral health going from Fort Carson to Fort Bragg. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea, but it's a totally different mindset. Having spent yeah. time there myself, um, it's a totally different mindset yeah. trying to convince another community to be able to try this. Yeah, that is very true. Um, the, you know, the, the history, you know, is as, as when we were, I was here at, at Fort Carson and a team that we were uh, working with, uh, you know, realized some of these big challenges that Fort Carson was facing with regard to mental health and the, the, the idea to move care out and these multidisciplinary teams out into the unit areas, you know, it was not only ours, there were other areas that were, were sort of moving in the same direction, a little different way or getting there, but it was an effort in, in uh, Vincenza, Italy that was going that direction. Uh, Fort Campbell had a little trial they were working for. Hood was trying to go in that direction. Uh, so there, there were more than more than one location, I think, arriving at that idea, which, uh, you know, was was not completely dissimilar to uh, ideas in the 60s and 70s, you know, to uh, make mental health care more accessible in the communities and deinstitutionalizing people. So it's a little little different analogy that was more inpatient than outpatient, but same same kind of concept. Um, and so when when uh, we had, had the opportunity here at Fort Carson, because we had this just tremendous support uh, to implement embedded behavioral health here. I think we're able to show the benefit uh, in terms of the outcomes here earlier than in some other places. And so the model that we used here was was kind of grabbed by the army and they said, that's going to be our model for outpatient behavioral health care. And uh, the, the benefit, uh, as much as there are some, you know, some frustrations with the army and the government as well, but the, one of the great things about the army uh, and the government as a whole is that there is a very direct chain of command. And, and so we're able to use that uh, to be able to direct this model of care at, you know, all, all installations where, you know, there were, you know, combat soldiers, you know, there. But that doesn't mean we didn't have to you know, spend some time winning the heart, you know, hearts and minds and, and showing, you know, people that this is, this is helpful. Um, but, but, but I would be lying to say if there wasn't a big part of uh, that, it was General Corelli as the vice chief of staff of the army turned at the army surgeon and said, look, we're going to do this and you make this happen. And the, and the G3 put, put forth an order. It <laughs> was helpful. And, and, and yeah. that's the thing. And, and obviously in post-military, military life is not necessarily like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we have this, it, it has worked, right? And we, and we've known that it has worked and yeah. it's, it's had benefits. And that's really where now the family care center uh, here in Colorado Springs and elsewhere is to be able to say is, is the same model, small interdisciplinary teams, people that you get to know, mm-hmm. um, that are going to be in specific locations that that's what they're going to serve. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the main benefits that we saw was that people tended then in, in this model of care, people tended to access care earlier within the course of, of their illness, uh, whether that was depression, PTSD, or, or anything else, they tended to access care earlier. The overall utilization of behavioral health care, you know, went uh, up almost 50% on the outpatient side, but the utilization then on the inpatient side decreased by about 40%, right? So our, our conclusion uh, on that dynamic is that people are getting care earlier. We're getting many conditions, not all, but many conditions treated more thoroughly when it's less severe, less complicated. And then there was then less functional impairment in their day-to-day job, which led them never to have to go into an inpatient psychiatric facility. Or if they did, they were they spent less, less time there. The overall bed days dropped by about 45% over the time that we put this into place. Um, we, we applied that same kind of principle in a similar way to school behavioral health care, uh, which is the same kind of idea that you open a little behavioral health clinic, sometimes just one or two, three providers actually within the four walls of um, many military and DOD schools all across the uh, across the country. We saw a similar dynamic there. Uh, so, and then out within the within the civilian community, within the family care center model, again, which is very similar, um, we have seen you know similar increases in utilization uh, here within the Colorado Springs community in, in general. Um, and I think what we've seen within the population of folks that have been treated within the family care center, that the chances that they will then require inpatient care later on is fairly low. Um, it, it's you know harder to measure some of these things within the uh, the broader system than within the military, but I think that's that's the direction that we feel that it's going, and I I, I think that the benefits you know for the community are there within this context within folks that are not within the military as it was within the military. And we don't need General Chiarelli you know coming out and pointing <laughs> and, right. and saying you know this is where you do it. But I think that's that's one of the benefits of that model. And you've also mentioned sort of um, repairing this fracturing of of sort of everybody has their own specialty in behavioral health care, whereas you have sort of the comprehensive teams. One of the unique things that we do at Family Care Center is provide all types of behavioral health treatment. You mentioned earlier transcranial magnetic stimulation, Mm -hmm. also medication management Mm -hmm. um, to outpatient therapy. Many organizations only do one type. They only do medication management and you got to go somewhere. It's like, you know, one place for your tires, but another one to, 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 you know, get the tires mounted, another one to rotate your tires. What we do here is really do everything in one house in that also builds on that trust. Yeah, that's, that's it's a critical it's a critical piece. Um, you know, the, the the term that we use it's patient centered. You know, care that is the what we, we try to organize our clinics and organize the services around what the patient needs, not not around the degree that's on our wall. Um, and that is that that is the primary design principle. When what within this community, when people seek behavior health care, what is it they need? Well, you know, they they need an evaluation oftentimes. You you know, by, by a therapist and individual therapy. Many may, many may benefit from medication management. Many may, may benefit from marital therapy or family therapy. Others may benefit or their kids may benefit from play therapy. Some may benefit from transcranial managed simulation. Um, as much as we can practically bring together to a single location, coordinated among those providers, designed around when the patient needs it, um, is, is the overall goal and, and something that's very important, you know, to us within the family care center and, and not necessarily taking that need to, to, you know, keep track of all of those people out of the hands of the, the, the client, but you know, everything that they need is here. Like you said, if you need marital therapy, um, mm-hmm. but also it's able to offload that trust where if, if I'm a counselor and they're sort of on the fence about medication management, I said, well, I know Dr. Ivany, right. you trust me, mm-hmm. you can trust him because I trust him. And so that therapeutic bond is yeah. elongated 
communicated or, or shared among people that are sort of in the same organization. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's very important, as we talked about, within mental health care in particular, because when, when you share your experience once uh, with somebody that you trust and then uh, you know they make a recommendation to you that uh, another type of service it would be helpful you know, to add clinical service to add to their treatment plans. Most people don't want to <laughs> have to start from scratch uh, with a whole you know, new, new treatment team. They would like that experience, I think, to be additive uh, and, and they don't have to start from the beginning you know, with, with, with everything. So uh, again, it's a, it's a very important piece and we feel like uh, you know, we're, always, we're always trying to work with that clinical model to figure out exactly how many providers of what type in each location. And it's all designed around what the, what the community needs. Uh, think of our Indigo Clinic recently where you know, it became clear that the need out there uh, based on what the community you know, was, was voicing, so our, our, our partners were voicing, we had a need for additional play therapy there, that there were more kids in, in, um, in treatment or needed treatment there. And so we were able to, to change the model a little bit there. We were able to adjust you know, up in, in, that, in that area. So I think that's part of, you know, part of our, our thinking is we will design it around what the community you know, needs. I wonder about that flexibility for mm-hmm. you, which is a little different is, is a lot of times the DOD and the VA and government, you didn't have that level of flexibility to be able to say, hey, we're going to make a decision and, and change something very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent 22 years in the bureaucracy and it yeah. was a little harder to make those kind of flexible moves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Slightly harder. Uh, in, in many cases, you're talking to a guy who just uh, was stationed in Washington, D.C. for uh, about nine years or so. And flexible is not often the adjective that's applied to the Pentagon or some of our other institutions there. But, you know, all joking aside, we, we there, there were some changes, obviously, that you're able to make. But within the family care center, you know, model being a relatively small in you know, a small organization that's, you know, f- founded by a psychiatrist uh, for the benefit of people in this community. We have a great license to be able to modify what we're doing based on what we're finding in terms of the outcome. So if we find that something works better. We're able to shift, you know, towards that here relatively easily uh, because we're not working through a big, a big bureaucracy or a big, you know, a, a, a huge healthcare system where you're trying to navigate uh, a lot of um, a lot of challenges to make those changes. And I think it's inflexible in but effective, right? I mean, because we can be sort of scattershot and, mm-hmm. and not very effective, but being able to be flexible and really responsive to the needs of the community. And, and again, this is really what you're talking about, both in your military career. What are the needs of the service member, the soldier, or whoever's there? But now, that what are the needs of the community? Mm-hmm. And, and there often is that stigma. You mentioned it before against seeking help for mental health conditions. It's changing, right? You know, we've seen it change. You saw it change from a, a medical perspective. I saw it change from a leadership perspective from 2001 to 2015, so to speak. But it's it's important to engage in a community, both a geographic community like El Paso County, but also like sort of the community of practice like the military and veteran community mm-hmm. to reduce that stigma so seeking help is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a complex uh, it's a complex problem trying, trying to break down stigma because there's no one answer. You know, stigma really is made up of a conglomeration, you know, of, of, of many things that can come from many different angles. And so you can't just fix one thing and then, you know, make it make it get better. I'm hopeful, though, because I I, I think of when I when I joined the military uh, and I, I remember talking to my dad and I told him, you know, I, I, when I was in med school and I, I told him I, was, I decided to go into psychiatry, read of all the, all the different medical specialties. I, th- I thought for a long time I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and I got to medical school and I realized that when the patient was asleep in surgery, I, my mind would why I wasn't that interested. <laughs> and what I was really interested in was when people are awake and when you're engaging and, and understanding what people went through and then, you know, using that knowledge to try to help them as a psychiatrist. But I remember telling him I was going to go into psychiatry and, you know, he, he sort of, he looked a little bit and he, you know, he said, wow, uh, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to put a lot of effort, you know, into helping the rest of the military community understand the benefit, right, of psychiatry. It, it was, it's not, a, it wasn't a, at the time, this is probably 1999, maybe 2000 or something. It wasn't obvious uh, to the military that there was a need or there was a benefit or that uh, that it was worthwhile. And that was my experience right when I came in. But I, I tell you, even by the maybe 2009, 10, 11, when I spent that time in Iraq, it was even beginning to change then uh, there as well. Uh, so I remember I was the division of psychiatrist of the 4th Infantry Division and our general's a hard charging two stars. Most of them are. Um, and he was, a, he was a tough guy. But when it came to mental health care, when I, when I would sit down with him and tell him I was a major and I would sit down 
and say, sir, you know, like we, we need to do this, this, and this. We need to move this asset from here to here to get better in mental health care to guys on these different forward operating bases all around theater. There wasn't a single time in which I, I think I ever made a recommendation that he said no. He was uh, in a good example of how the military, I think, was starting to realize that this is important. You know, this is important for lots of different reasons. You started to see a change in the leaders. And then later in my career, you started to see more of a change in the junior ranks uh, and the, the acceptability of mental health care. And as the mental health care, I think the quality improved, you know, over that that period of time, then it became more trusted. And long story short is I, I'm hopeful that the stigma within the community, non-military community writ large can change because I think it has changed to some degree, certainly not completely. I witnessed it change, you know, between the 20 years that I was in the in the military. And I, I think it's happening within the civilian community as well. And um, I'm hopeful that it will continue to progress. I'm curious, though, is 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 how that change uh, can can be implemented in the veteran community? Because, again, and you mentioned it before, in the military, you could file everybody up outside the doc's office mm-hmm. and file from the right column, right? And everybody goes through. It's very directive to the, the, the CG or the colonel saying, you will sit down with the doc and talk for 10 minutes. However, that but that same directiveness is in, in the yeah. mili- in the veteran mm-hmm. community, and that has to be self-generated sometimes. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you're, you're completely right about that, Dwayne, which is where uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind always in those situations is building those trusting relationships with those communities. So again, maybe we can't break down someone's entire idea or stigma about mental health care in general, but if we can build a relationship with even one person within mental health care, then that can be, be, that can be enough you know, for, for some people to reach out and to start to start to engage, you know, in care. Yeah. And, and again, from our focus, thinking about the family care care center, not just the person, not just the service member and veteran themselves, but also the, the broader support system. You know, the research indicates that veterans that have a good support system that are, are favorable for them seeking help, have better outcomes and care. Also providing that support for family members, spouses, yeah. children, so to speak, because mm-hmm. my wife experienced my four deployments a lot differently mm-hmm. than I did, but she yeah. experienced them nonetheless. Uh, no, no doubt. I mean, when, when I deployed for end of 2009 or so for about, about getting ready to go for about 15 months, I had three, we had three kids, my wife and I had three kids under the age of four, you know? So I'd often think when I was in theater, as difficult as that was, I think, man, it's, it's probably not that much easier on the home front. Fortunately, you know, she, we had great support from our family and the Fort Hood community where I deployed from at, at that time. And, you know, we you, you get, she got through fantastic. She's a wonderful, remarkable woman, but it, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's different. It, it's difficult. Uh, and to understand the experiences of the family along with the service members is a, is a critical, is a critical, uh, link because they're, they're intertwined, you know? And I think that, and, and we talked about this uh, on last week's show about first responder families is a lot of military families have the same kind of stigma, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they recognize uh, sometimes. And when I tell my kids is like, when you're out on post, you're, they know you're my kids, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure that you're representing me and, and that, so to speak. And so military spouses, sometimes even military children have the same type of stigma against, I just need to suck it up. I just need to get on to the next thing. And that stigma can internalize and keep them from seeking help as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's certainly possible. And it's certainly a factor within various communities. You, know, you sort of take on different roles and you think in your mind, all right, with, within this role in the community, then you know I have to do a certain number of things uh, and I can't do a certain number of other things. Sometimes that's, those are healthy and positive and they keep you on the straight and narrow. But sometimes, you know, when you interpret your role as a leader in the community or a member of a family who's a leader in, the, in a community um, or even a member of a community, you interpret your role that way as not as going so far as to prevent you from, you know, receiving help or working through challenges in, in a mental health, you know, community, then, you know, then it tends to be counterproductive. And I, I really appreciate the Family Care Center taking the steps that it's taken. So as we wrap up here, any mm-hmm. final thoughts? No, I, I, Duane, I just want to compliment you, you know, and what you've done here with the Family Care Center. Um, you know, you, you're leaving a legacy of service to not just the organization, but to the people that the organization serves that we all are inspired by. And I'm very happy to be joining this organization for lots of reasons. And one of the things that will, uh, I think, carry on is what you've established here and how much you've meant to the people of this, uh, this community. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, anytime. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Dr. Ivany. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to drop us an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com. 
Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, Homes for All Veterans. Homes for All Veterans is funded by a specific grant, Supportive Services for Veteran Families, awarded Rocky Mountain Human Services by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs since the inception of 2010, along with Volunteers of America, who also shares the statewide grant. The SSVF grant was founded on the principle that no veteran should be forced to live on the streets and every veteran has a right to safe, permanent housing. As an SSVF grantee, Homes for All Veterans is dedicated to ending veteran homelessness by fostering a well-coordinated and efficient local community system that assures veteran homelessness is rare, brief, and non-recurring. To support these efforts, the HAV program currently employs 30 staff members to include outreach and intake specialists, veteran support specialists, housing specialists, a healthcare navigator, and many program coordinators and assistants to support our service of more than 1,100 veteran households each year who are experiencing literal homelessness or are in danger of homelessness throughout the state of Colorado. The veteran population that Homes for All Veterans serves are considered the most vulnerable, low-income veterans, and their challenge is to effectively target their services to engage those veterans who are most at risk. As an SSBF grantee, they actively participate in local continuum of care planning and coordination and collaborates with the continuum of care and the VA homeless coordinators to ensure that they're prioritizing and connecting veterans to the best housing supports and solutions available. Eligibility for SSBF includes the absence of other housing options, financial resources, and support sufficient to prevent or end literal homelessness. For example, veterans who, without the program's assistance, would become or remain literally homeless and or make it difficult to become rehoused if they became homeless. Eligibility and prioritization criteria do not include factors such as minimum income, skills, or ability to obtain or maintain employment that are designed to screen out applicants who are predicted to fail in permanent housing. Once enrolled in their Homes for All Veterans program, Veterans will work with an assigned veteran support specialist who, in partnership with a veteran household, develops an individualized housing plan following a thoughtful assessment of areas and includes the participants' goals, strengths, and preferences, addresses critical housing retention barriers, and is reasonable and realistic in scope, recognizing the general difficulty people have making multiple simultaneous life changes. The initial plan addresses the participants' immediate housing crisis and any risks to health and safety, while subsequent plans address obtaining and or maintaining permanent housing. SSVF differs from other VA programs in that grantees are community-based veteran-centric organizations, grantees serve veterans and their defined household, it has a homelessness prevention, diversion, and rapid rehousing focus and provides temporary financial assistance payments to help increase housing stability, which may be provided to third parties on behalf of eligible and enrolled participants. SSVF complements other programs by providing a short-term intensive housing case management model that partners with other community agencies and can offer additional services to support the veteran's individual needs, provides a services bridge or enhancement to permanent supportive housing programs like HUD-BASH vouchers, and is a homelessness eviction or housing crisis prevention program that assists in diverting veterans from entering the homelessness system from becoming homelessness, from becoming homeless in the first place. Especially in our community's current rental market, it's important to keep people housed because the number of veterans seeking housing continues to outpace the rate of veterans being housed. This is because our current rental market rates and move-in requirements are locking vulnerable veterans out of housing and increasing the trauma within our veteran population who are forced to remain homeless longer than anticipated or lose housing after many years of stability due to rent increases at lease renewal. In our Colorado Springs, El Paso community, there are over 300 veterans known to be experiencing homelessness. No one really chooses homelessness. People sometimes initially choose to be free of responsibility, but most people experiencing homelessness landed there due to some type of difficulty. Unemployment, illness, accidents, separation in their family, and in our veterans' case, trauma related to service in the military. But no matter the reason, these are individuals who chose to serve our country and are now homeless in our city. Evidence shows that when a person has safe, stable housing and connections to social supports, they are more able to improve their lives and become active members of our community, our neighbors, our friends, our workers, our family. Sadly, today we only see them as the homeless veteran. We must do better and we can do better. Housing First is a key to ending veteran homelessness, but with increased rents and standard move-in requirements, we have not been as successful finding landlords who are willing to embrace this evidence-based, cost-effective approach to ending homelessness for the most vulnerable and chronically homeless individuals. 
The Housing First model prioritizes housing and does not determine who is housing ready or demand preconditions such as employment, income, absence of criminal record, or sobriety prior to housing. Instead, Housing First provides a harm reduction supportive services model that wraps around veterans as they work to maintain permanent housing. To support our veterans securing housing, we need more landlords who are willing to support in housing our veterans. Homes for All Veterans has the financial resources and supportive services available to partner with local landlords, so if anyone is interested in helping to house our veteran neighbors, please reach out to them by calling 719-323-2600 or email landlord-info at rmhumanservices.org and ask to be connected to one of their housing specialists. If you're a veteran or know a veteran who needs support in increasing housing stability, please either call them at their Colorado Springs 17 South Weber office, 719-323-2600, which is also open to walk-ins on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 8.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. to 4.30, or call 1-855-VETS-HAV, that's 1-855-838-7428. Please also connect to their website at rmhumanservices.org forward slash HAV to learn more about eligibility requirements and additional statewide contact information. So thanks for checking out the Homefront Military Network resource of the week. If you want to hear more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you want to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find them at fcsprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thanks for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. We'd like to answer any questions you might have or know what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send us an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. We'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed in this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a clinical mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services, our family caring for your family, fcsprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family.